Good day to everyone and it's lovely to be back on the Climate Talk podcast. Uh, it's been a while and it feels really, really good to bring you some really good content and information about climate change, the impact of climate change in various parts of the world and of course what people are doing. I really love to emphasize what people are doing to address this challenge, this crisis, this emergency that is nipped around climate change. Welcome. If you're joining for the first time, this is the Climate Talk podcast. And on this podcast, what we do is simply have conversations with people about issues around um, surrounding climate change. Uh, and I've been privileged to speak with, you know, a whole lot of people from different parts of the world, virtually every continent of the world. Um, people in the government, people in the um, diplomatic space, people in the enterprise space. I mean, innovators, policymakers. It's really been a great ride uh, on the Climate Talk podcast, and I'm really grateful for everyone who has featured on this podcast, everyone who keeps sharing, and everyone who keeps looking out for the next episode of the podcast. My name is Sheifumi Adebote. Call me the Green Guide, and I'll take you on a smooth green ride on the Climate Talk podcast. This is made possible many thanks to my friends, Olumide uh, Idowu and Jimo Uluwatobishegun, who do the all behind the scene work to make sure that this podcast comes to you right now. So once again, I want to say welcome on board. This is the Climate Talk podcast. I don't know where exactly you're listening from right now. And that's because we've got the Climate Talk podcast on virtually every platform you can find a podcast. From iTunes to Google Podcasts, Teacher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Anchor. And of course, uh, on the website, which is www.climatetalkpodcast.com. Remember, we also post updates on our social media platforms. It is at ClimateTalkPod on all platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Feel free to connect with us. Tell us what you think we're doing well. Tell us what you think we can improve upon. And if you have an interesting story that you think uh, we, you, you think it would interest the world, of course, why not? Bring it on the Climate Talk podcast and let us have some conversation and inspire some people out there about you know, some hopes and some actions that we can take to make a difference. would be great if you can hit the like button, subscribe, and also share this with your friend. I really, really would appreciate that. Let's leave it at that and get right into the conversation today. You want to take a guess who my guest is? Of course, you already know from the posters and all that you've seen and, and the footnotes to this podcast. But yes, I can do a proper introduction of Azel Chapman. Azel Chapman has a very interesting story, born in Malawi and moving into Nigeria at a very young age and living most of her childhood here in Nigeria in a place that today is called the Ingle in Yaki Forest Reserve, somewhere in Taraba State and she'll tell us a lot more about that uh, on, on this episode of the podcast. Today, she is an associate professor at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. But she's got this very wonderful project she's coordinating in Nigeria, the Ingo Inyaki Forest Reserve. We'll get to know more about it, but just before I do that, just some background information. You may have heard of national parks, but maybe not forest reserves. But it's interesting because there are over 1,000 designated forest reserves in Nigeria. Uh, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization puts it at uh, covering 10% of Nigeria's landmass. Uh, one of these, I mean, Hundreds or thousands of forest reserves is the Ingal Inyaki, uh, Inyaki uh, Forest Reserve. It's located somewhere in Taraba State, it's on the Mambila Plateau. 
uh, very close to this village called Yelwa village. I did not know so much about it until I had this conversation with uh, Azel Chapman and I bet you're about to learn a whole lot. Very interesting stories and very interesting um, things to learn from this conversation with my guest Azel Chapman. So welcome on board and let's get right into it. My guest on this episode is Azal Chapman. I hope I pronounced that right. Yes, yes, that's right. Great. How would you like to introduce yourself, Azal? Well, I am, I guess primarily I am a, an associate professor at the University of Canterbury, where I teach evolutionary ecology. But my research interest is basically in Nigeria, and it's conservation biology and in environmental science. And so much of my teaching also involves uh, those topics as well. And Why, I, Nigeria? I'm based Why in Nigeria? I mean, you're based in New Zealand. Uh, you've lived all your life there, I guess. So what exactly? Not, not at all. I was, I was born in Malawi. Malawi? Uh, my father was a forest officer. Yeah, in Malawi. Great. And then we moved to Nigeria mm, uh, I when I was quite young in the 1970s. And my father then, he worked for the Nigerian government mm. again in forestry. And we lived on Mambilla Plateau. Mm, I see. Yes, so I know the place very well. <laughs> I can make the connections now. And then when you left, yes, when did you leave Nigeria? Uh, well, so, so my father left Nigeria in the early 1980s, but I then went back in two, 2002 for the first time. Why that was, was because my father worked in Omambilla Plateau and he surveyed the forest on the plateau. And sometimes as a child, I would go with him. And these forests in the 1970s were very, very remote and they're very special forests for Nigeria. They, they have species diversity that is only found up in the mountains. And so, so through that, in about 2000, I worked with my father and we, we got money from the World Wildlife Fund and we wrote a book about the forests of Taraba and Adamawa states. And as I was helping my father write the book, it occurred to me that I had to go back and see the place again. And that, that's what led to the project that's running now. Wow, that's really, really interesting. So tell me, between, I mean, 1980s uh, and 2020, what difference has, have you seen over the years? That, that is a, years. a very good question. Well, and that, that was a major question of why I went back. I had a group of people from my university here in New Zealand and also from uh, NCF, Nigeria Conservation Foundation, and Nigeria National Parks. And we went on it we for 50 days. We trekked um, in the mountains of Taraba. And, we, and not only the mountains, we went to some lower forests as well. And we surveyed the forest to ask this very question. 
And interestingly, what we found was that the forests that my father described from the 1970s, in 2000, most of them, in terms of forest and trees, were very, very similar. So there hadn't been much change. But where the change had come in was in the wildlife. And the forests now have almost no wildlife left. Whereas in the 70s, they were full. They had chimpanzees, buffalo, warthog. You know, they were alive with animals. Now they are almost dead in terms of animals. So that was the major change on the higher mountains mountain forests but in the lowland forests like River Nwum and Akwezanta the actual forest had been logged and turned into farms so there were major changes lower down. Great thank you very much now I am wondering how does that make you feel I mean having lived there when you were young um, understand and appreciate how rich it was and coming back 40 years after to see that it is becoming a shadow of itself, how does that make you feel, Azel? Well, it, it makes me feel very, very sad. But I, I all, because of Ngalnyaki and because of the project that we have set up and the people that are there on the ground and working to restore the forest, I also hope, I hope that things will become better again. I understand that the whole world has changed. There are now many more people, many, many more people in Nigeria and many more people on Mambilla. So things will never go back to where they were. But I hope that given support and given the attitude of the people that we have around us for Mambilla, that we will be able to restore some of the diversity that was there. Ah, great. I, I mean, hope is one thing we must keep alive. And this is one thing that I have seen in my environmental journey over the last five, six years. If there is anything we must not lose is hope. And that hope must come with action. That is exactly what you are doing. So can you take us on a virtual tour? Uh, I mean, I have listeners from the US, across Nigeria, other parts of the world who have never been to, you know, maybe some of them have not been to Nigeria, some of them have not been to protected areas like the uh, Ingel Inyaki Forest Reserve. So can you take us on, the, I mean, a sort of virtual tour and let us, I mean, open our, open our world into what exactly uh, this forest reserve looks like today? Yes, I, I can do my best. So the, the, the forest reserve that I'm working at is in it's in Taraba State, which is, is one of the most uh, it's, it's, a, it's a large state in Nigeria. It borders on Cameroon and I'm working up in the mountains of Taraba State. So right on the border of Cameroon. And it, it really still is. It's a, a relatively remote part of Nigeria. Uh, it's becoming uh, the, the roads being improved, but to get up onto the plateau uh, it is, is quite difficult in, in terms of driving and many people don't like to go that distance. So we're talking about quite a remote area. It's an area of, it's a volcanic plateau, so there's rolling grasslands and those grasslands are mainly tussock, tussock grasslands and they're grazed by cattle. And so Mambilla is home to many, many Fulani with their cattle. 
at the same time, the more indigenous people of Mambilla are the Mambilla and Kaka, and there are several other local tribes, and they traditionally are the farmers. And so on Mambilla, what we have is sort of ongoing simmering tension uh, between the, the Fulani and the farmers. And then in the middle of all that, or kind of like squashed out between all that, are some beautiful stands of montane forest. Now, this type of forest that is found on Mambilla is, is unique. Uh, there are some similar forests across the border in Cameroon, up in the mountains, and also in Gashikagumpti National Park, which is, uh, I think it's Nigeria's largest national park, and it's not so far away. Uh, but on Mambilla, uh, as I say, there are still some stands, a few stands of this forest, this forest type left. And the reserve that I'm working in, Ngalmiaki Forest Reserve, has one of these, has the largest stand of montane forest on the Mambilla Plateau. And so the forest is confined to steep slopes so that it's protected from grazing and it's also protected from fire because the grasslands are burnt annually to stimulate grass growth for the cattle. So you have this like a little island of incredible forest. And so what we have done is on, on the very edge of this forest, we have set up a research station and the, the station has been funded by um, from from several different sources, including Taraba State, who really sub, sub support our project um, in a small way, but they 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 help us very much, and they have given us the land to build the research station. And having this research station, which is completely run by the local community, uh, people from the local village um, and surrounding hamlets, uh, we have brought up the Nkyanyaki forest has become known. Uh, and we look after the forest, we research in the forest. And we're also starting to try and regenerate the forest. And, because the actual reserve is 46 square kilometers in area. So that is a large area, but the, the area of actual forest that is left standing is only about 5.2 square kilometers. So there's lots and lots of potential for us to regenerate this forest. That talks about does, how, does, I mean, listening to you as I'm saying, I mean, you've talked about the, the huge impact of deforestation from 42 to five. I mean, that's a whole lot of, you know, original forest that that has been lost. You also talk about the conflict, um, the Fulani and their heads, and then the need to, you know, keep uh, a sizable portion of the resources there. Am I hearing you right? Yes, yes, that's correct. I. I... So I think from what you're saying is, yeah, it's very, very important that we have this area set aside uh, for reserve. And so it seems a fantastic opportunity for us to regenerate the forest into the area that has been set aside as reserve. Hmm. True, true. I, I, I totally agree with you. So let's go on to talk about I mean, one thing that stood out for me 
uh, is how you've involved young people, um, how you've involved the, the local communities. I have myself worked uh, a bit around wildlife protection. And I know that it is one thing for, you know, people like you and I who have the knowledge and understand the need to protect these things to walk into such communities and want to get something done. But it's completely different if you do not involve uh, the local people to take the action, to lead, to have that sense of ownership, then we may be failing even before we start such projects. So tell me how, how exactly, I mean, with that, I've put, I've put it uh, on ground. I've sort of made it clear that it is important to involve local communities. But I'm really curious to know how exactly have you been able to get these young, um, these uh, local communities on board and what the, I mean, I would love to know, is it because you have the support of the government? Uh, are there other things that has made it possible for you to have the buy-in of the local community? Well, I, I would say I, I, don't, I don't think it's got anything to do with the government. Uh, it's got to do with personal relations. And when I first went to Yelwa, which is the local village in 2002, uh, there were one or two people there that my father had worked with. Mm. And they remembered my father. And, it, so, and they gave me such a welcome. And then, as well, there were two people. There was Misa and Augustine, who just who lived in Yelwa. They, they're just local people, and they were my guides. And it was through Misa in particular that the whole thing had blossomed. Uh, he was so enthusiastic. Um, he was a farmer, so he was my guide. Uh, showed me around the forest. And we agreed that in three months time after my university term ended that I would return and see about starting some research. And so from so Misa then found one or two other people from the village um, who would help with research. And I brought some, some of my students out from New Zealand. And from then it has grown and it's completely grown from Yelwa village it's it's the people there and it was them that was they that said to me Hazel we have to have some buildings on the ground or this will become nothing and so they gave me all the support that they could and I would go to Lagos Abuja and I would talk to people and try and get funding when I when I returned to Mambilla they were there on the ground carrying out the work and from there, from from that very very lowly beginning, we we started a building um, on the first of January in two thousand and five, and we now have thirty six people that we employ. Little, it, uh, it, it, we have um, we have email, um, internet facilities through satellite, which is very very expensive, but we have to have that because now. The, the, the people from Ambilla, the young people, they run the place. And, um, and when I'm not there, particularly just now with COVID, you know, it works. But, but as well as that, I would like to say, it's not only that because through my research, I've had many Nigerian uh, PhD students come to New Zealand to do their PhD, but they do their field work, their conservation field work, on Mambilla at the field station. 
And one of them in particular, Dr. Dan Ladi Bumar, he is now, he's taken over from me as the director of the project. And he is based in um, Gombe. And so Dan Ladi also uh, it interacts with the people on the ground in Yelwa. So, so that's how, it, how it's run. Incredible. Now, there is one more thing that I want to uh, I want to hear your thoughts about, and that's how you've been able to communicate. I mean, it's been there before now. Like you said, you put the first building there in 2005. But recently, you sort of have been able to harness, you know, Twitter as a platform to communicate uh, the wonderful things you're doing and how, you know, you're really, I mean, all the research work, that you've been doing, not just for Nigerians, but even for people from New Zealand. So, and if there is anything that I, I am very, um, I've always been a, a promoter of is climate education, climate communication. How can we, you know, it's one thing to do very incredible things on the ground. It's another thing to communicate these things uh, to people that really need to have this knowledge. And I think you've done that really well. You've done it really, really well. So, are there lessons that you you think someone listening can take from how you've been able to communicate the work you've been doing at the Forest Reserve? Well, I I have I have learned this um over many years the the importance of communicating what we do, and I, I guess it. I, I guess there's different ways that we communicate. And one thing that I haven't mentioned is that at, at the field station, we have a lot of IT students, young people from Nigerian universities, and they come and stay with us for up to six months, um, having work experience. And I think actually being on the ground uh, for them is a very, very good way of communicating about the importance of uh, conservation, the environment and leading into climate change and that sort of thing. And educating um, those young people who come from right across Nigeria uh, is, a, is a major start. And then the other thing about communication that I see is very important is that the information has to be understandable by people from a whole range of backgrounds. It's all very well to publish in high profile academic journals, but very few people actually read that information. So the information has to be readily available. And we started out uh, with Facebook and we have a, a very active Facebook group I noticed yesterday we have nearly 2,000 followers which for us is a lot yes. and we up, and we update our Facebook regularly just with local stories about what's going on at the field station and what we're doing about the biodiversity that is associated with the forest and recently um, as you know we've become we've become involved in Twitter and to me, that has opened up a whole new world of communication. Honestly, I had no idea about all the good good things that are going on across Nigeria in terms of climate change awareness, in terms of tree planting and conservation. And so I see now that Twitter is an incredibly valuable platform. Does that help? Yes, it does. It does completely. Um, 
you talked about Facebook and uh, I, I think 2,000 followers or 2,000 active members is rich for a Facebook group. And it's also interesting that you update it regularly. It's one thing to, you know, have platforms. I'm not wanting to throw, throw stones that some, you know, other government led or, you know, some, uh, some other groups that have platforms that they do not update. So I really do think it, it's good that you update it, not just with um, foreign stories, but with local things, updates about what is going on on the ground. Uh, and uh, I mean, ways to get the buy-in of people to support the, the work that you do. Uh, I think that will be about... Were you saying something, Azal? No, no, sorry. No, it doesn't matter. Okay, okay, good. Okay, for me, I think those are those were the very uh, interesting. Um, those were the, the main points I wanted to to have a chat with you about. To, you know, understand what it is you do, how you do it, and also talk about the um, the bits of communication, how you've been able to communicate the work you do, and how it has added up or uh, you know supported, contributed meaningfully to the work you do, and. Uh, Maybe we can also have a very quick chat about um, the educational part. You talked about, you know, students coming to carry out research and uh, the fact that most of this research may not be read on the library shelves where they are. Uh, th this is one thing about, I mean, I also, how would I put it? I know how useless it, it tends to, to be when students, thousands of students carry out very good research project and they're just left on the file with no one to reference them no one to use them for anything is this also a concern for you that students come uh, to the forest reserve they see the work you do they make out very you know useful um, outcomes or results conclusions from from all the work that you do and what is going on but are you concerned about how these things are being used do they really I mean, do people get to use them? Do, do these results shape decisions or policies that, that takes place? Well, I, th I think that's a very good question. And again, I'm very positive about this because many of the students that are associated with Nganyaki are Nigerian by, by far now, particularly now with COVID and things that are going on in Nigeria. They're mainly Nigerian students. And my, my, my belief is that, that, these, that many of these students will actually be the future in terms of policy making or, or be part of the future in policy making. Uh, for example, there are 24 PhD students have gone through Nganyaki many of them are now university lecturers in Nigeria. So they have the knowledge, they, they have their own practical knowledge, they've been in the forest, they understand what's going on, they can relate it to a larger scale, and they are now teaching in Nigerian universities. Uh, other students are actually, um, what well, will definitely go into government and be involved in policy decisions. So yes, I think that even though maybe some of the actual data uh, will go into journals and may not be read again. I think the, the important ideas are out there. 
Thank you so much, Ezra. Uh, is there any other thing you would like to share with us? Well, what I'd like to say is thank you very much again for inviting me to talk. And I, I really appreciate it because keeping this project alive is a very, very difficult thing. And to be able to spread the word is so important for the future of Ngalnyaki Forest and also, I believe, for the future of the project itself. So it's been great to meet you and thank you. Thank you indeed. And I, I mean, nothing takes away um, the passion that one puts into a project that is that you can personally associate with. And I think that's one thing that has been pushing you despite the challenges, despite how tedious the task it is to still do the best you can to protect uh, the biodiversity resources, to educate people and to also employ um, you know, local people in protecting the Ingal and Yaki forest. Thank you so much for the very important work that you do. And I really do appreciate uh, you for taking out this time to have a chat with me on the Climate of Podcast. Thank you, Ozel. Oh, thank you. I will keep in touch. That's the size of the package of today's edition of the Climate Talk podcast. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Really appreciate you being there, listening. Remember to subscribe. Uh, check the website, www.climatetalkpodcast.com. And this is virtually on every platform where you find pod podcasts. So feel free to share, subscribe, and keep spreading the word. Feel free to also reach out to me. My email is sheyi at climatetalkpodcast. Sheyi is spelled S-E-Y-I at Climate Talk Podcast and I'll be glad to interact with you. If there's an interesting project you think we should talk about or something in the climate uh, scene that you think could interest other people, why not shoot me an email and we can take it further from there. Many thanks again to Olumide Edowu, Yusuf Ibrahim and Jim Olua Tobishegmu who made it possible to bring you this edition of the Climate Talk Podcast. To my guest, Azal Chapman, thank you so, so, so much. We'll bring you another edition of the Climate Talk Podcast in the coming days. Keep your fingers crossed and keep looking out for that on your timeline, on the website. Remember to subscribe also so you can get a notification right in your inbox when we do release the next episode. But for now, that will be all. My name is Shay Fumi at Debotte, your green guide, and I hope it's been a beautiful ride. Enjoy. Enjoy.